Brent Oberstein, Senior Editor at No-Till Farmer, and welcome to the latest edition of our 2018 No-Till Farmer podcast series. Today's program, Strategies for Getting Off the Starting Block with Cover Crops, Part 2, is brought to you by Montag Manufacturing. I encourage you to subscribe to this series currently available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about upcoming episodes when they're released. If you have another app you use for listening to podcasts, let us know and we'll make an effort to get it listed there as well. I'd like to take a moment to thank Montag Manufacturing for sponsoring today's episode. Montag Manufacturing is your fertilizing equipment specialist, offering dry, liquid, and complete fertilizer systems as well as auto steer carts. Montag's Precision Fertilizer Placement Solutions will reduce your rate, increase your yield, and assist your stewardship goals. A major supporter of agronomic education, Montag is a title sponsor of each of our four ag events per year, and their sponsorship of this podcast allows us to share meaningful knowledge with you via audio as well. Visit their website today at www.montagmfg.com or call 712-852-852. 4572. While cover crop seeding has been growing by leaps and bounds in the no-till community the last several years, getting them established can be a challenge even for the most seasoned no-tillers. Whether it's using covers to improve soil health or as an alternative feed source for livestock, there's plenty of homework and planning to be done to make cover crops a successful venture. In the second half of this two-part podcast series, cover crop educator and Pennsylvania no-tiller Steve Groff will share some important insights for no-tillers who are grazing cover crops on their operation or thinking about doing so. He'll also detail the kind of planning process no-tillers should have in place when seeding cover crops and why they should look at least 12 months in advance when ordering seed, and what questions no-tillers should ask when choosing a seed supplier to work with. Grazing livestock on cover crops is becoming more and more popular in some parts of the country. For our livestock growers out there, what are some of the important considerations for choosing covers? Well, first of all, if you're a livestock grower, uh, cover crops are a no-brainer. People ask, do cover crops pay? And I certainly think they do, uh, particularly if you look at it from a 10-year perspective. If you're a livestock grower, I, I, I'd be, I will go out on a limb and say they absolutely pay probably every year. Um, and that's because not only is it the forage value you're probably getting from grazing or, or some selective harvest, but the fact of bringing animals onto the soil, and I use those words for a reason, uh, the, the, the animal component brings in another level of biology that maybe even supersedes, we'll say, the first level of biology with just having plants growing year-round uh, in the sake of cover, in the instance of cover crops. So, uh, again, you know, it's, it's more of you're completing the cycle of nature by having animals. And, and again, they need to be well-managed. Uh, that's another thing that goes without saying. But uh, bringing livestock into a system, if you're able to do that, is, again, I would say almost something magical seems to happen. And uh, even though I never thought I'd say this, uh, I'm headed in that direction myself to try to bring some livestock back in the farm. I've, I've worked with my neighbor on a couple occasions bringing his uh, beef cows over to my fields, but we're thinking about setting ourselves up a little bit more permanent in that because I have seen the benefits in my travels. 
And it's clearly, and, and just referring back to our discussion on fertilizer rates, uh, here again, because you're using, you're using animals, in this case above-ground animals, to recycle nutrients, even, even that, the net effect is giving you an ability to even cut your fertilizer rates even further. So uh, there's definitely, definitely a lot of advantage for livestock. That goes smack dab against what we've been doing in agriculture the last 50 or 60 years. But I think if we're going to need to remain sustainable as farmers, we're going to have to take a serious look at somehow bringing livestock back onto the soil for, I'll just say, even if it's just sheer economics and lower cost production. So that's a whole other topic in itself, John, but... uh, it, it's a, I say cover crops and cattle are a no-brainer. Let's talk about the planning process that goes into implementing cover crops. You believe there are five reasons you should plan cover crops 12 months in advance. What are those? So planning for cover crops 12 months in advance is simply back to something I say all the time about treating your cover crops like your cash crops. I mean, you know, we don't maybe think much about planning our cash crops a year ahead but we're thinking about it. Uh, sometimes it's just because we've done it for so long that it's, it's intuition. The challenge with cover crops is since it's a new concept, we don't think about it typically until it's like the day of we want to plant. And a lot of times we've missed opportunity. And I'll just preface it before I start listing some of these by saying the price of cover crop seed and the cost to plant it is the same no matter when you do it. But there's a huge difference, and I'll just use the example in September and into the first week or so of October for large sections of the area that every day is very significant. And just as if farmers are almost always ready to plant corn, the first day the planting of corn window opens up, they're ready. They got their seed months ago. The planter's been going over, worked on, ready to go. You've thought in your mind which fields you're going to plant first. All that stuff is done because we've known that's what it takes to be a successful cash cropper. You need to apply the same tenacity, the same passion, if you will, to cover crops if you want to maximize their value. And this is something that that people forget, and they, they sometimes will accuse cover crops of not working. And if they would have planted them a few days, a few weeks sooner, they would have had success. And I'm just using the planting days as an example. And I'll just say, I'll just harp on this a little bit because it annoys me when people say cover crops don't work and I start asking their questions. If you would say, well, I planted my corn on June the 10th and I didn't get a very good yield, it didn't make me money. And, uh, you know, and I'm never going to plant it again. Well, I would say well, that's because unless there was a really, really good reason, that's past the normal planting date of optimization from most areas of the country for corn. So we get that. We don't even ask those questions. So whenever someone says cover crops don't work, I always start asking questions to try to find out why. And, and sometimes there are, there are reasons. But planning 12 months in advance is important, and, and it's, it's not hard to do if you just follow my advice of treating your cover crops like your cash crops. You just take everything you think about with your cash crops, apply them to cover crops, the discussion's over. But we need to jog our memories sometimes. 
uh, and there's a few little things there that uh, that, that I want to that I want to indicate. So I'll start out by number one. This would be to learn all you can about what you intend to do. So again, this is implied. What am I trying to accomplish? So again, be a student of what you want to do. Uh, and, and I would say in that is talk to other farmers who are doing what you want to do uh, wherever you can. Um, you know, go to meetings and, and all that. Uh, so that you have a basic understanding that next year I want to plant such and such a cover crop after such and such a cast crop in such and such a field. Have that in the back of your mind. And is, there, is there anything I need to be thinking about now? Probably not a lot, but that's, that's a foundation. And that's why I say a year ahead. Um, so the second one is you may ask, well, I really don't have a planting window and and I don't, you know, I, I don't really have a good chance to plant cover crops. Well, can you widen that planting window? Is that possible with your cash cropping sequence? Um, can you do interseeding uh, into standing uh, knee-high corn? Um, aerial high-clearance equipment is an option, although not as consistent. How about using shorter season genetics, shorter season corn, shorter season soybeans? There's some good genetics out there. I've done lots of testing on that. I've found several that are uh that are that allow harvest two to three weeks sooner and still get equivalent yields. That takes planning because now I gotta order my seed when I'm ordering my corn or my beans, I need to discuss with the salesperson what are some good genetics that could grow in my area to plant five percent of my acres or a field uh just so I can get cover crops planted in that field. I'm gonna set myself up for it. Does it always work out? No, but you're setting yourself up for success. And then another one is follow the harvester. Uh, it's the combine or the corn chopper or whatever. Make it happen. Every day in September is worth eight or more in October in growing time. So, uh, and I've I've heard this story time and time again. I don't have time to put someone on the tractor during harvest. And what invariably happens is if they ever get uh, a good cover crop stand and they see the difference between one week what it makes they'll find a way to get someone on a tractor out there somehow mixing seed with fall applied fertilizers all different kinds of ways get creative how do you follow the harvester so that you essentially don't waste a time a day of opportunity for the cover crops to grow so that takes planning uh, you got to have that planned out before you ever start harvesting, you have people lined up, seed lined up, your drill or your planter all ready to go. Those are the things that historically we haven't thought about. It's not in our normal routine. But uh, as you learn to effectively grow cover crops, it will become the new normal for your routine. Another bigger one is uh, adjusting your herbicide programs because... I'm convinced sometimes it's like the silent killer of some cover crops. Um, herbicides, by and large, have not strongly uh, affected cover crops, but they do affect them. And they're, that, that comes down to understanding the, the half-life of a given herbicide that you may use. It doesn't happen very often where a residual applied at planting to a, a cash crop will affect fall-planted cover crops, but it can 
There are some out there. This, this is there's so many variants to this that you need to check with either your local herbicide dealer or, or local university who's looked into this in regards to cover cropping. Um, and of course, we all know how weather plays a huge role in how herbicides break down and so forth. So understanding that and planning for that, what are your options uh, in in doing that? And and I would say too that that's I, that what I just talked about was more on the residual basis, but I just want to mention to plan ahead for your termination of your cover crop and what time you're going to do that. Think about that because when you have a wetter spring, you tend to going to want to let your cover crop grow longer to dry out the field. If the fields are, if you're dry and there's no rain in sight, you'll want to terminate earlier. So you may have to be ready two weeks earlier than you're expected. These are just small things that add up. And yeah, you can make spur-of-the-moment decisions, but have it thought through. Usually, again, what separates the successful cover croppers from those who I'll just say not as successful is their ability to make decisions on the fly. And that's not happenstance. That's usually because they've done their homework, they've thought about various scenarios, and you sometimes you wake up in the morning and you have to make a decision. And, and you don't have time to go on social media. You don't have time to go to a meeting. You don't have time to even check with your friends sometimes. You have to make a decision uh, on what to do and then understand the associated risks. So I'm just using that as that's a whole thing about being prepared. Uh, the other thing in thinking ahead uh, at least a year or so is what's your how's your fertility plan? What will be needed to know? And I'll just use the classic example if you're planting corn into a grass-type cover crop, like cereal rye, triticalia on your ryegrass, you're going to have to have more nitrogen up front because those grasses have pulled a lot of it out of the soil profile. And this is the most common mistake that farmers make when they plant into those kind of cover crops. Is they want to front-load their nitrogen heavier than maybe they were used to. It depends what situation they're coming out of, but... Uh, then again, if you have legume-type cover crops or a mix, you can adjust to maybe put your nitrogen on a little later as a side dress or not as much early. And, and again, I'm just going to make a, kind of a passing reference to that, but it does make a difference on, on how efficient you are with fertilizer depending on the types of cover crops that you have, uh, have planted. So uh, this is, again, one of those decisions that you want to have thought through before you go into the field to plant. And there's another one here that is a little different than the first ones, but if you do have cost share availability in your area uh, with uh, either you know government programs, state or watershed organizations now have uh, cost share money out, you don't just call them up one day and say, hey, I'd like to plant some cover crops tomorrow. Can you pay me to do that? Well, that ain't going to happen. A lot of times that's two to three, four, five months ahead or more. So... I'm kind of a proponent of using cost share to get jump started, to get kick started. I feel personally that once you get into cover crops, you really don't need those programs anymore because I feel they pay for themselves. That's just me. You want to manage the opportunity, fine. I don't hold it against you. Um, but uh, you need to think ahead of time to sign up for those opportunities. And, and finally, I'm going to throw a bonus in here, John. Have a conversation with your landlord about cover cropping. Um, landlords fall into a couple categories, and it's kind of like farmers, but it's just 
It's 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 that some of them, when they understand the value that you can bring to their investment by increasing soil health and keeping the soil and the land from erosion, some landlords are like, yeah, please, I want you to do that. Other landlords say, I don't want you to farm ugly. I don't want to see any green in the field in the spring. Uh, so depending on your landlords, um, <clears throat> I have heard of landlords actually offer to pay for cover cropping. And so... That may be an opportunity for you, but again, that's a decision and a discussion that should happen months in advance of a cropping season. One other consideration for implementing cover crops in a rotation is having a reliable seed supplier. When growers are choosing a supplier or company to work with, what are some of the important questions to ask? So one of the things you need to do when when you're thinking about a cover crop supplier is to determine uh, how much knowledge they know uh, just about cover cropping. Now, if you're confident in what you know and you feel good about their seed sourcing and so forth, there's no problem buying seed from them. But if you're a new person to cover crops and your cover crop seed supplier just basically says, I don't even know what you're talking about. I have these here, but I don't know anything. Either either you do, you, you do your own homework or, or go to someone else who knows what they're talking about because you don't want to get something that is not appropriate. So uh, assessing your supplier is important, where they're at, and then you kind of have to go with, where, with, with, with that and so forth. One of the um, things that has kind of come with the newness of cover cropping, as someone has said, it's like the wild, wild west out there, and maybe anything goes. So be careful if you see either a really bargain price or, or even if it's not a price issue, be careful that you're getting what you're asking for. I know when I was in the radish seed business, there were, uh, you know, kind of when the radish craze hit like five to eight years ago, everyone wanted to throw radishes in the bag and sell them. And some of the radishes were really good and others were not. And so understanding what those genetics are is, is very important. And um, the other thing in that regard is to even test yourself, especially if you're a larger grower and you, you get a couple totes or a couple thousand pounds of cover crop seed. It doesn't cost much, doesn't take much time. You can pull your own seed sample and get it analyzed. And I'll just say this, that when you see a, what is on a, a seed tag, that has been taken from usually just several ounces of seed in a, uh, it could be a 20,000 pound lot of seed. And as you can probably think, there can be a lot of games played in that. And um, so I'm not saying you don't trust anybody. What I'm saying is you need to have a healthy kind of a skepticism there because it's easy to hide stuff in seed. So it really comes down to a reliable and reputable seed supplier. Uh, and if you're really serious about this, just start asking them some questions about where are they sourcing their seed. They may not want to tell you everything, and I get that, but uh, just to, just to ask some questions. Do they really know what they're what they're getting? So that's initially, I guess, John, my my response of some considerations when you when you start to knowing what questions to ask. We'll be joined by conversation with cover crop expert Steve Groff in a minute, but I wanted to take time to once again thank our sponsor, Montag Manufacturing, for supporting our No-Till Farmer podcast series. Montag Manufacturing is your fertilizing equipment specialist, offering dry, liquid, and complete fertilizer systems, as well as auto steer carts, 
Montag's Precision Fertilizer Placement Solutions will reduce your rate, increase your yield, and assist your stewardship goals. A major supporter of agronomic education, Montag is a title sponsor of each of our four ag events per year, and their sponsorship of this podcast allows us to share meaningful knowledge with you via audio as well. Visit their website today at www.montagmfg.com or call at 712-852-4572. Now let's get back to my conversation with cover crop educator and Pennsylvania no-tiller Steve Groff as he discusses what kinds of issues no-tillers should check for when they receive a seed shipment and what they should know about the source of their seed. Groff will also share some of the unique ways no-tillers in Europe are using cover crops that he learned about during a recent trip, and some concerning trends across the pond regarding the use of glyphosate in Europe to terminate covers in the U.S. no-tillers may want to be aware of. Uh, what should growers check for when they order and receive seed from a supplier or company, and what's important to know about the source? First of all, the germination. Personally, and I should have known better, I've been in this business for a long time, I got a a very reasonable price of a cover crop seed here locally, and I got home and I checked the seed tag, and it was 82% germination on cereal rye. That's very low for cereal rye. It should be 90 or above. And I thought, ah, that's why it was so cheap. So there's just that's a simple thing. And look for noxious weeds. See, every state or province has guidelines as to what they are allowable for noxious weeds. And noxious weeds are weeds that maybe like thistles, that they're around, but we certainly don't want to spread them around through the cover crop seed. But sometimes it's impossible to get to zero. So they allow a small percentage. So every state has a standard. It has to be listed on the tag. There's also prohibited weeds, too. And um, this is why you want to uh, buy from someone that's reputable, that they actually take a test that represents the sample. And I'll just throw in here a little thing about buying seed from your neighbor. Um, Legally, they're supposed to have that tested as well, just to protect you in case you get some seeds. If I was buying seed from a neighbor, I I wouldn't mind seeing the field before it's harvested, even if it's cereal rye. You know, if there's thistle patches all around, I don't think I want that seed because I'll probably get some of them even though it goes through a cleaning process. So um, I think knowing the source, and and it really comes down to reputation. Uh, And and ask, again, like I said earlier, asking questions. But um, ask the seed company if they test seed lots uh, that come in because I know some seed companies do. When they get it from their supplier, it could be a broker or it could be directly from a farmer who grew it, they'll get those lot, um, those lot tests the, uh, of the representative sample, but once they get it in, they will test it themselves just to verify that it's close. So these are some uh, great questions to ask, and if you start getting a little bit of a runaround, you might want to uh, be a little bit wary of, of that type of, uh, of a seed company. So um, that's just some of the basic things. In, in buying seed, it just be a little bit astute. Um, I would say the cover crop industry is maturing. And if you look at, let's just say, other crops like commodity crops of wheat or even corn and soybeans, guys who have been a little bit loose with their, uh, their testing 
pretty much gets sorted out eventually. Uh, the cover cropping is still new enough yet. Some of those, I'll call them shysters, uh, are still out there trying to make a quick buck on the cover crop euphoria. Um, so, yeah, that's just some, just ask your seed supplier a few questions to get a sense of uh, how, how uh, confident they are in the genetics. And just be an observer when you plant stuff. If you see some weird things grow in your field, you might want to, you might want to check into that or ask uh, if anyone else has saw that. I've heard that happen already. Um, so just a little bit of advice on, on, on buying from a reputable supplier. Tell us about the trip you took recently to Romania and Belgium and what you learned about cover crop adoption in that area. Well, the cover crop adoption in, in Europe has, I could say, a similar pace as maybe the U.S. and Canada. What is different is most European countries that are in the EU have mandated uh, cover crop plantings in certain percentages in certain areas that uh, basically if you don't have anything growing from September the 15th to November the 15th, you need to plant a cover crop. And that has built up some farmers who are kind of bucking that, digging their heels in, so to speak, and other farmers say, we see the benefits of cover crop, no problem. Um, and, and actually, it's tied into their subsidies they get as well. They're, they're I would I'd have to say, fairly heavily subsidized. Um, so there's a, there's a direct link of that, which, which you can kind of understand. So in being there uh, myself, uh, I've been there several times now, so I kind of understand this. And, and I'm mainly talking to the farmers who want to make this work. And, um, but I would have to say, particularly since this is a primarily a no-till audience, that the, the difference that I see over there is there's still a lot of tillage used in conjunction with cover crops. Now, I, I feel that cover crops make no-till a lot better, but the reality of it is over there is still quite a bit of tillage uh, being done. So, yeah, the opportunity is huge. I've mentioned in some of my earlier talks about there's definitely some cover crops there that even I learned more about and about using uh, that I'd like to apply here and some concepts, too. So we got we got a lot to learn from each other, and that's the beauty of cover cropping. It's, it's the principles of cover cropping work worldwide, but how they are um, enacted, how they are applied are, of course, different. But there's just some fascinating things there I think I'm going to well, I know I'm going to try to incorporate into my, my own farming system here in Pennsylvania. In what ways are they using cover crops in Europe? Is there anything different or unique about what they're doing? Probably one of the most unique ways is mixing cover crop seeds with cash crops, and in particularly with oil seed rape or canola, uh, as we call it in this side of the pond. Um, so when canola is planted the end of August, beginning of September, they're planting cover crops with the canola that will winter kill, like an oats or like a fava bean or like phacelia, uh, chickling vetch, um, some of those that will winter kill when it gets down to the, in the mid-teens. That provides a certain amount of weed control simply because there's more plants there. They're suppressing weeds simply with shading. provides a little nitrogen that some of the legumes will give to the canola, the brassica crop. Um, and this is fascinating uh, to actually see this working. Uh, this pastime I saw in Belgium, where actually uh, Bayer, the, the chemical company Bayer, 
was doing a very complex research plot involving multi-species cover crops planted with the cash crop of oil, seed, rape, or canola in conjunction with various herbicides. Now, the goal is to not have to use any herbicides because of the suppressing capacity of the cover crops mixed in with the cash crop, but nonetheless, they're looking at that. So just seeing that kind of research and the process of that has been very intriguing. Um, personally, I've been employing some of that here on my farm here. I've been growing some oil seed rape on contract. Um, or, uh, so, so anyway, that's probably one of the more innovative ways I've seen cover crops used. Um, but the other thing I would have to say is that I've seen cover crops terminated more with some sort of a some type of a tillage implement. So, uh, as I alluded to before, there's more tillage there, so I, I see some of that uh, sometime. All the way from moldboard plowing cover crops under to just pretty much just disturbing a little bit in the soil surface with the cover crops. With the European Union trying to limit glyphosate use, what should no-tiller seeding cover crops in the U.S. be thinking about in terms of termination options, and, and should they be concerned about that? I'll answer your last question. Should um, U.S. and I'll say Canadian farmers be concerned about the limiting of glyphosate use? I would say it is a serious, serious issue. When I was in France last time in September, I had a farmer ask me point blank, he said, what would you do if you could not use glyphosate? And by the way, gramoxone is already banned because it is in Europe. And actually, it took me back because I've never seriously thought about that. And I said, unless they design an alternative to a burnt-down herbicide, there are certain times where I could use some other chemistry to control broadleaves or control grasses, but I probably would have to resort to some tillage at some point in my rotation. And it pained me to say that because I am a pure no-tiller on my own farm here. But when you think about it, if you could not use gramoxone or glyphosate, what are our options? So the reality is that the EU, uh, this past uh, the fall of 2017, voted to delay a decision on the future of glyphosate for three to five years, but they have given each country kind of their own path to come up with a plan. So it is a reality that glyphosate could be all out banned or there could be a compromise struck, and that's what we hope for, where it could just be limited. Now, what is interesting, this is already... Uh, taking some, some um, I guess you'd say, taking some root in, in being applied because if you take the subsidy to grow cover crops, and you're required to, by the way, on a certain like 5% of your acreage, you cannot terminate that cover crop initially with glyphosate. That, that has to be a tillage pass, has to be performed before you can come in and literally spray on glyphosate. Which, from my perspective, and probably a lot of those listening to this, that seems a little backwards, but, and I'll just be very forthright here, the organic movement in Europe is 
very strong. And so the politicians and have kind of bought into this that that is the direction they want to go. And they don't seem to understand, again, my perspective, the difference between the destruction that some tillage can do versus the potential destruction some glyphosate can do. I think we all agree that glyphosate has been overused. I certainly feel it's been overused, but I don't want to take it out of my toolbox until I know there's a replacement tool, so to speak, that might be there for us. So uh, these farmers get creative, and it was interesting. I saw some tools there that are simply like a tine-type tool that was designed to break up soil that was crusted. So it's at an angle. When you pull forward, it just breaks up the crusting soil so like crops can emerge uh, basically because of tillage, you know, is why we have crusting. So since that tool was used for tillage, they're kind of getting around the loophole by pulling that tool across the cover crop, and it, it literally does not engage the soil. It kind of acts as a roller or a crimper in a way. Then they can come back and spray glyphosate. So it's interesting how innovative farmers can be uh, sometimes. I saw two of those tools in this recent trip one in Belgium and one in Romania. Um, so um, getting back to the question of the limiting glyphosate use, that is a very real, uh, I'll say, threat, and it was talked about every day that I was there because that is probably the biggest, I'll say, controversy or debate that's going on there now. So um, so that is a that, that is, when you read about that in the news, maybe about the EU and glyphosate use, um, there is a uh, reality to that. Now, where this will turn out, how this will turn out, three to five years, I don't think any of us know the whims of politicians, but but they hold the cards. So, um, and again, you you might people have asked me, so why can't the farmers, you know, kind of get their say in this? Well. First of all, farmers themselves are way outnumbered. Um, And then you have mainstream agriculture, and you have the more uh, no-till cover crop type component of mainstream agriculture. You're down to, you know, less than a fraction of a percentage of actual voices in that. And even though agriculture is so, so hugely important to everyone, there's there's just not many voices uh, uh, able to speak up and I would say give a little dose of reality into the overall picture. So, yep, it's something that we should, we need to monitor. Um, and and again, I'm I'm personally saying, yeah, I want to use I'm using the least glyphosate as possible on my farm, but I certainly don't want to see it banned at this point. We'd like to sincerely thank Steve for sharing important tips and considerations when it comes to implementing cover crops on a no-till operation. For those listeners who would like to hear more about successful strategies for no-tilling, please visit notillfarmer.com slash podcasts. Again, we'd like to recognize and thank our sponsor, Montag Manufacturing, for helping to make this No-Till Farmer podcast series possible. If you have any feedback on today's episode, feel free to drop me an email at jdoberstein at lessertermedia.com or give me a call at 262-777-2430. Once again, if you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or the Google Play Store to get an alert when future episodes are released. 
You can also keep up on the latest no-till farming news by registering online for our no-till insider daily and weekly email updates and Dryland No-Tiller e-newsletter. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at No-Till Farmer with Sparmer spelled F-A-R-M-R and our No-Till Farmer Facebook page. For Steve Groff, Montag Manufacturing, and our entire staff here at No-Till Farmer, I'm Senior Editor John Doberstein. Thank you for listening. Thank you.